Awake in the Dream Radio with Laura Eisenhower and Dr. Dream. Raising your frequency and expanding your consciousness one guest at a time. Hello. Uh, welcome to Awake in the Dream Radio. I think we just had a little bit of a tech glitch. I couldn't hear anything. So I will just let you all know a little bit about um, the astrology for the week, uh, just to get just some info out there about it. Uh, tomorrow, everybody look out for tomorrow. There is a Sun-Saturn square um, it's a very important time to work on mastering how to best channel and direct our creative energy um, up against, you know, different control forces, whether they be from authority structures, government, even cops, uh, maybe just old, the old voices in our head or something that has to do with responsibilities that we just can't uh, seem to shake. Um, it's definitely one of the more challenging type transits to deal with uh, because it feels a little bit forced upon us. Um, so that feeling of being pressured or burned in uh, can happen. And, uh, you know, that feeling that everyone is against you and, uh, <laughs> and maybe feelings of isolation and discouragement. So it's always good to have a heads up about these sort of aspects because we can kind of, you know, wake up and set our intentions a little bit more clearly and, um, you know, get in the flow that can sort of counteract it, you know, because we're somewhat prepared. It's all about preparing the nervous system. So um, if your intentions and goals are, are really – you know, in your best interest, then, you know, it's, it's a testing period to just challenge uh, your tenacity and your dedication and focus. So let's see, the sun's in Aquarius and Saturn is in Scorpio. So it's going to light up all sorts of things connected to stepping up into our role in the new paradigm energies and, uh, you know, really working on uh, understanding what those goals are and if they really serve us and the collective um, in the best way possible. So, Sorry for that little delay in the beginning. It was our chance to take a deep breath, even if uh, that wasn't really um, an, the intention. It was something of a larger intention. And I hear Dr. Dream, I hear him breathing just a little bit in the background. Are you Alrighty. in, Dr. Dream? So, yep, we're here. Um, this whole blog talk radio thing is getting very interesting. We'll have an interesting phone call with them tomorrow. But um, hopefully everyone else has gotten in. This is, I missed the total beginning. This is, of course... Um, Awaken the Dream Radio, and today is January 29th, and um, yeah, exciting times. Wow, a little bit crazy. Um, what did I miss, Laura? 
Well, I just uh, realized you weren't there, and for some reason I thought you might have been talking, and I was cut off from hearing you talk, and then I realized, well, maybe I should talk. And so I've been sort of sharing some things about tomorrow, the Sun uh, Saturn Square. I hardly really introduced the show, but, you know, it's great that we have such an awesome show. These sort of things just don't end up mattering. Um, but, yeah, I was talking a little bit about the astrology. I still have a little bit more to share, but uh, no real rush. So, right. Well, let's, let's go ahead and um, finish up on the astrology, and then we'll move on. Great. Well, around the first, uh, the Venus parallel Jupiter will be peaking. And what this tends to bring is just, you know, a lot of positive energy and just that feeling on a foundational level that everything's really going well. Um, and, you know, I have to uh, just say that I'm feeling this um, in the core of my being. Even if external things or just on the surface things can be difficult and challenging, still the same humdrum, you know, bills need to get paid, blah, 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 stuff in the news that I still really don't pay attention to because I don't trust it. But, you know, being an observer and keeping my eye on it, of course, we're still going to be dealing with similar energies. But it's on a foundational level in the sense that we've crossed this December 21st period, and there's something, you know, deep inside of us that has sort of overcome a hurdle, and there's a sense of relief and uh, a lot less exhaustion or urgency or anxiety and demand. Um, I'm feeling just a lot more relaxed. So this should be peaking for people, or they should be feeling it, definitely around the first. Uh, it's just that overall um, sense of just being able to really relax, and, you know, maybe for the first time in 26,000 years kind of relaxation. I don't know. Um, also, uh, it gets further strengthened by the fact that um, very soon after that, Mars and Venus change signs. Mars leaves Aquarius and enters Pisces, and Venus leaves Capricorn and enters Aquarius. So Mars entering uh, a water sign, you know, always means more inner work and focus on the inner stuff. Um, and so uh, it, it's good because it breaks down the ego and allows it to dissolve into the soul essence. Of course, if we fight it, it can manifest um, in, in not the most pleasing ways, but it, it might produce a dark night of the soul, which is always necessary. Um, and Venus leaving Capricorn entering Aquarius gives just the heart a, a big lift, um, just, in, in a, just a sense of freedom and, and liberation. Also, one more thing, Mars conjuncts Neptune and Pisces coming up um, around, the, I think, the afternoon of the 4th. So Mars conjunct Neptune is very similar to Mars being in Pisces, so this really amplifies uh, Mars in the waters. So our egos are, are taking a huge plunge into the, 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 the water element. Um, and, and, of course, there's many different levels, everything from lower emotional energies, depression and the heaviness that we might you know, be carrying, to complete and total bliss and tranquility. So if you're hitting the murky stuff, keep going, keep going. You know, Ask your will and your uh, desire nature to just move through that stuff and, and keep swimming until you get to the crystalline pure waters and allow yourself to really purify during this time. Awesome. So, so yeah. lots of really good stuff happening and yeah, lots of challenging yeah. stuff. And <laughs> all of it just wanting to be end up being good stuff. And I love getting the heads up, like you and I have been talking quite a bit about tomorrow, and interesting how aspects of tomorrow's energy are bleeding through uh, today for us. But um, I, got, I got my plan tomorrow just to, to hibernate. I think I'm taking a, um, a bed day. <laughs> it's just, yeah, you know, dealing with a sun-Saturn square, it's not a good time to try and um, confront things that, it might cause a disappointing answer, things that, you know, might relate to business-type stuff, um, responsibility-type stuff, you know. 
anything that feels like a burden, uh, you want to sort of lessen it and not, you know, jump right into it and ask too many questions or immerse oneself in business deals or just things that reality checks could smack us in the face. It's much better to do that during a more harmonious time between things like Sun and Saturn um, rather than a conflicting time because it only really lasts a little while and uh, no point in, um, make, you know, being vulnerable to uh, negative energies because uh, it's really just the timing isn't right and, it just can produce more trouble than it's worth uh, when it comes to just documentations and things we need to fill, you know. But at the same time, it might come thrusting at us out of the blue. Whether we want to sleep in and just take the day off, it might just be ringing on our phone and end up in our email box, some sort of demand that we don't want to deal with. So just be prepared. Some things you just can't run away from. (laughs) Gotcha. Well, it has been – We've had a, a good week since our since our last show. We did a uh, full moon sweat this weekend, which was very nice. Well, I'm not sure many people will believe this, but this was my first time in a sweat lodge. Right. Yeah, it was awesome, um, and we're going to be doing it on a regular basis. We're getting ready for just uh, some just deeper work in that arena because it's just incredible to focus prayers and intentions and release it's 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 great so i'm really grateful for that powerful times right now that's that's for sure um so we've been dealing with some some interesting energies uh with our with our radio broadcasts um the most um i don't want to say disturbing but i guess the the least comfortable being uh when lisa renee got kicked off uh, the line uh recently and um wasn't able to get back on. So we've had to make some changes because it's really important, the information um, that we're sharing and the people that we're inviting on, and it's really important that we don't deal, that we deal with as little interference as possible. So uh, we've instituted something new. Uh, We'll see how long this goes for. But um, we are now recording the interviews the day before. So it's still in the current energy, but if anything goes wrong, we're able to, um, you know, act accordingly before it becomes just sort of a pain on Tuesday nights. So um, we're excited about that, and uh, this will be our first one. Um, So let's all uh, just sort of join in, and um, you and I have heard this uh, interview already, and it is Awesome, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, really, really. Uh, I, I'm so excited, and I, I, I'm going to shut my mouth right now because I was about to just give away some goodies. But it is not to be missed. This is an amazing <laughs> show for sure. <laughs> All right. So, without any further ado, let's move right into um, the introduction of this evening's guest. It is such a joy for me to introduce tonight's guest, William Henry. I came across William Henry and his work back in 2006, which was around the time I was getting into writing more and sharing more about the Magdalene energies. I was recognizing how so much written about her uh, only really talked about her in biblical terms and the story of her redemption, and I really questioned the validity of so much that uh, others were writing. I knew there was a lot more in connection to Stargates and her role in regards to the larger picture of everything here on planet Earth. I also intuitively knew that there was a ton of hidden history about her that I was working on uncovering through my path. So as I was writing and digging deep, I wanted to see if anyone out there had ever connected her with Stargates, and that is when I found William Henry. 
It was such a huge relief to see his vast amount of research, so many books written on the subject, and also on the subject of our ascension, our multidimensional nature, sacred symbols and their meanings, Christ consciousness and what the return of Christ means, and information about lost secrets and ancient artifacts, and just so much more. And from his website it says, William brings the evidence of our divinity by bringing to life the stories of ascension through art. He teaches the secrets of soul transfiguration or metamorphosis and connects people to one another across cultures, time, and space. And that's just incredible because, I mean, talk about really creating a, you know, unification. And, you know, what I love is that for people it's not just about taking in information. His work becomes an experience. Um, and really shifts people. So I've always felt immense gratitude towards all that he has helped open our eyes to, and his dedication and hard work I just so deeply admire. I personally have never seen anyone traveling so much all over the world, putting on so many workshops in his hometown, and whipping out the amount of books that he does. I mean, it's incredible. It blows me away. Um, So just to share a little bit about uh, him, William Henry is an investigative mythologist and author of more than 15 books and numerous DVD presentations. He is the host of uh, Revelations Radio, heard on Unknown Country, where he frequently interviews experts on the issues surrounding the Stargates and Ascension. William has a passion for finding amazing ancient art and symbolism, especially relating to uh, human transformation, interpreting interpreting it in light of a higher consciousness and sharing it. He is a regular contributor to Coast to Coast AM with George Norrie and History Channel's Ancient Aliens. I'm so happy that today we have the chance to dig deeper into it all, especially with his new book out called The Judgment Day Device. I'm also very excited to find out more about how it relates to the Ark of the Covenant. To me, there's nothing better than exposing what has been hidden and what this ascension process is all about, and I certainly do not doubt the relevance and accuracy of what he brings forward, because as I stated before, he was the only one I found that seemed to really get the Magdalene energy so it is my deep honor to welcome our guest, William Henry. William, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure, Laura. Thank you for having me. Yes. It is absolutely a treat uh, to have you on the broadcast tonight, William. I I have just um, I've I've known about you now for I don't know a couple of years anyway, and um, impressed with the amount of research, the books, just just everything that you're putting out there. Um, but just to, to start off the interview tonight, um, how, what background um, and, and what kind of upbringing or, or what kind of a child were you that you end up being this, you know, the um, author and an investigative mythologist and just this whole process of how you connect the dots, really? Give, give us a little bit on, on your background and what kind of prepared you for all of this. Well, yeah, I, I was really into sports growing up, uh, baseball, football, all that kind of thing, and that was kind of my 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 real passion uh, as a kid. And it wasn't until I, I moved to Nashville, where I presently live, I've lived here 30 years now, uh, to go to college. I was going to be an entertainment lawyer, and the, I was going to a small Southern Baptist college here in Nashville because they offered this entertainment music business degree. They had professionals coming over and teaching us from Music Row, which is the country music center here in Nashville. But the the catch was, because it was a Baptist college, you had to take Bible study classes. And growing up, I, my family wasn't particularly religious. We went to church on Christmas and Easter, and that, that was about it. And during my sophomore year of college, we were assigned to review a book whose implications would impact Christianity. 
So this is the fall of 1982. I hiked it down to the local bookstore, and I found this brand-new book that had just been published. It was called Holy Blood, Holy Grail, and started flipping through the book and was instantly hooked. It, it talked about Jesus and Mary Magdalene being married, that the crucifixion was a, a carefully scripted drama, maybe even a hoax, and that there was a, a small village in southern France where they preserved their secrets. And that was enough for me. I, I ended up writing a 44-page paper about this book and was actually asked to leave the school because I, my beliefs were contrary to the, the Southern Baptist beliefs of, that the school was founded upon. And I just took off on my own. I dropped out and started researching on my own and became a, a self-made, self, uh, self-educated mythologist. Wow. Amazing <laughs> story and, and so fitting for for where you've gone with all of this. That's great. I appreciate that foundation for the, for the rest of our uh, broadcast tonight. So, William, as far as your work goes, um, can you tell us a little bit about the evolution of it and how it sort of landed you in this new book, uh, The Judgment Day Device? It feels like, I mean, I remember someone once said about Zachariah Sitchin, who had, who had written 12 books, that you can either read all of all 12 of Zachariah's books or you can read the 12th planet 12 times <laughs> it's all about it's kind of all about the same thing and that's sort of where I find myself I I actually started writing children's stories children's books in uh, 1990 I wrote a book called Junior Cosmic Egg that was my first book it was a, the story of a cosmic egg named Junior who wanted to grow up to become his own universe <laughs> and I, I was out on the, the whole life expo circuit collecting stories about kids and their interactions with angels and ETs and was like having a great time with that and kept writing junior cosmic egg books and thought that that's going to be was going to be my path and then I discovered the work of, of Zachariah Sitchin and sort of got rerouted and um, started getting into the, the uh, deeper into the parallel Christian mysteries if you will the Gnostic mysteries and it seemed that um what really drove me was this I, I remember reading back in the early nineties uh it was Lewis Ginsburg's book, The Legends of the Jews, where he talked about the Messiah and the Messiah's forerunner and this to do list that the Messiah's forerunner had, which included getting the Ark of the Covenant, the flask of manna, the cruise of anointing oil, and the rod of enlightenment. And I just really locked on to that to-do list and, and started kind of working on it because I had a deep interest from Sitchin's work about the Anunnaki and the belief that they brought power rods and other technologies to Earth and just kept pulling on that string. And it seems like over the past 20 years or so, I've just continued to to work on those same ideas of, well, who were the Anunnaki? Where did they come from? What did they bring here? And how come it's still so important to us today? Wow, that's awesome. So tell us a little bit about your new book and, and you know, what it, I, I don't want you to give all of it away, of course, but you mentioned the Ark of the Covenant and some things connected with that that I'm sure most people haven't even heard about. Do you want to give us just maybe a brief little glimpse into to all of this? Sure. Yeah, my new book, it's a historical investigation. It's called The Judgment Day Device. And the subtitle of the book is Lost Secrets of the Throne of the Second Coming, the Ark of the Mahadi, and the Messiah's End Time Kit. Uh, the premise or the kind of the impetus for the book was learning that Iran, or especially the, the Shia uh, version of Islam, which is primarily in Iran, 
they have a, a, a belief that the, they're awaiting the arrival of a messianic figure called the Mahadi. He's called the, the 12th Imam or the hidden Imam. And they believe that in the end times, the Mahadi will emerge during a time of immense global chaos, which the Shia Muslims believe they can accelerate. We can talk about that in a moment. But what really got me going was the learning that the, the Shia Muslims, based on what they what is written in the Quran, believe that the Ark of the Covenant will be recovered by the Messianic Mahadi, and it will be his sign and his symbol. And when I read that and learned that, I was absolutely shocked because I'd, I'd read many of the best-selling books that have come out in the past 10 years or so about the Ark of the Covenant. None of them ever mentioned that Islam has this prophecy about the recovery of the Ark. So I started pulling on that, that thread, and that became the, the driving force behind the book and the recognition that Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, all three are anticipating the imminent arrival of a of a Christ, Messiah, or Mahadi. And what most people don't know is that all three are actually symbolized by this device, the Ark of the Covenant. And what I also put forth in the book is this idea that the common conception, the popular conception of the Ark of the Covenant as a simple golden box that contains the Ten Commandments is incomplete. There are other tools or implements that are included within the Ark, and when the full or complete Ark of the Covenant is is manifested or assembled at Judgment Day, at the end times, it's actually a Stargate device. Mm. So how, how wow, okay. And so the book actually yeah. then became kind of providing insight into the present and unfolding conflict between Iran, Israel, and the U.S. Because we, we started, especially last year, hearing in the news about a coming nuclear war possibility between Israel and Iran. Because what's behind this is the belief of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, who is the president of Iran, who has publicly stated many times, including at the United Nations in his address there on September 26, 2012, that he is the herald or the one who will introduce the Mahadi. The Ayatollah Khomeini, who is the spiritual leader of Iran, claims and has claimed publicly that he has in, been in contact with the Mahadi, and the Mahadi has told him that he will manifest on earth while the Ayatollah Khomeini is still alive. And this, the Ayatollah Khomeini is in his 80s. So in Iran, in the Middle East, there's awareness that there's a ticking clock that's happening here. And behind it is the realization that the Mahadi will be the one to reveal the Ark of the Covenant, who will take it to Jerusalem. And by the way, uh, according to Islamic prophecy, the Mahadi has an assistant, Jesus, who will be assisting him in the revelation of the Ark of the Covenant. And ultimately, uh, what uh, Shia Muslims believe in particular is that if the Mahdi is successful, as they believe he will be, then all of the world's religions will cease to exist, and only Islam will continue as the sole world religion, and it will be operating out of Jerusalem, which is something that Israel will never allow to happen. <laughs> it, it seems to be setting up um, one hell of a confrontation, huh? Yeah, and we're and we're in it, and this is part of why I wrote the book was to raise awareness to say, look, guys, um, this is this is the thinking uh, behind 
Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, the American government's not so much involved in it, but it's primarily Israel and Iran that are really ratcheting this up. And it's like, look, this is not what we want. And in fact, uh, while I was writing the book, it was it was really a, a really intense period of research, and I got a really a huge glimmer of hope while doing the work when uh, an, an Israeli graphic artist. Uh, started to get really upset about the way things were really starting to ramp up in terms of the rhetoric between Israel and Iran. So he went on Facebook, he, he created a graphic that, it, that said, I'm Israeli and, and I love Iran, I love Iranians. Before long, there were tens of thousands of Israeli, Israelis and Iranians who were mimicking his Facebook page and creating these graphics that said, I'm Iranian and I love Israelis. And the the bottom line was the people were saying, we the people don't want war. It's the politicians that want war, but we don't. Mm -hmm. And that was just an astounding development in showing the way that individual empowerment can really shift and change these scenarios. Because what happened was, after that, the, the public sentiment really started to grow, and the politicians had to climb back down their trees and, and weren't able to, to perhaps fulfill what they wanted to fulfill at that time, which was a, a major global conflict. Oh, that's wild. And so um, wh- while all this is <clears throat> is is happening, uh, and you're writing the book, um, were there I, – I, I've just got to feel like there's um, – shall we call them the powers that want to be wouldn't want this book out or you know any empowerment um or you know anything that empowers uh uh the the people what w- did you run into any issues or and and what kind of response have you have you gotten now that the book's out well yeah i mean that's a really great question mark because during while writing the book you start to realize well wait a minute I mean, this is history in the making, and I, in fact, I, uh, in November, I went to, to England to meet with Graham Hancock, who's one of the world's great Ark of the Covenant experts, and it turns out that, that he was on this story as well, looking at Iran and its interest in the Ark and what's happening with Israel and the U.S., and his book, the, the Sign and the Seal, had come out around 1991, and I asked him, I said, Graham, when you wrote that book, did you have any idea then that the Ark of the Covenant would become front and center or have the possibility of becoming front and center in global affairs as it looks like it will be. And he said, there's no way I could have conceived that at that time. And what what I started to think about while I'm writing the book is that I'm, I'm getting really deep into the Ark of the Covenant and, and finding things about it that haven't really been recorded or discussed in, in other books or in the public domain, uh, certainly. And I started to realize, it's like, wait a minute, I mean, I'm just a guy that's been doing around 25 years of research on this with with very limited resources. Imagine you're Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, the the president of Iran, and you believe that you're the herald of of the new Messiah. He must be devoting immense resources towards the discovery of the true Ark of the Covenant. And I realized that, man, this is really kind of freaky because what if – the the research that I'm doing is stuff that he hasn't or his team hasn't thought of. And I'm, in fact, assisting them in a way towards the revelation of these secrets that maybe, you know, actually don't belong in their hands. So those kind of questions do sort of play mind games with you as you're thinking about it. 
And it, it certainly did with me. And I, uh, there was actually a time when I thought, you know what, I think I'm just going to tuck this book in a drawer and, and leave this alone for a while and, and see where it goes. Because it's it's incredibly controversial for, just from the standpoint that, one, I'm, I'm, I'm following a, a parallel or different track about the traditional view of the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, everybody who's seen the Indiana Jones movies and and things like that think that the Ark is just this simple box that might have these extraordinary powers, when in fact, when you really get deep into the research about the Ark, you realize that it is, uh, it's a Stargate device. It, it was a it's described in the Bible as the throne of Yahweh, the Old Testament God, and it is through the Ark of the Covenant that, that Yahweh would manifest. But, but not just Yahweh, humans who come into contact with the Ark of the Covenant are transformed on contact into what we think of as angelic beings. And they're able to enter the heavenly realms via the Ark and then phase back and forth between the material and the non-material realm. So we're, we're clearly talking about the Ark as much, much more than a golden box, and now looking at it as this a, amazing consciousness technology that can transform humanity. And this is why I, I call it the Judgment Day device, by the way, because it's prophesied to appear at Judgment Day, and in my opinion, it, it will be the last human invention. It, it will be the device, once we fully manifest it, that will represent the last uh, invention that we'll ever need. Wow. So I, I've, I've got to ask, and I, I, I haven't read your book yet, um, where, where do you believe the, the Ark is, or, or what exactly is it then? The, the Ark of the Covenant, the complete Ark of the Covenant, is actually the same thing as the throne of the second coming. There, there are, of course, millions of Christians around the world that believe in a second coming of Jesus or a Christ or a, a Messiah-type figure. What really shocked me uh, as I'm doing this research is I found out that there's an actually there's a throne of, of the second coming. It's called the Edomatia in Greek. It means the prepared throne. And I started collecting artwork, and all this is in the book, this this various artwork from, say, the 6th century up to the 15th century that shows the, the throne of the second coming. The throne of the second coming includes the Ark of the Covenant as a base or a platform. Attached to it is the cross or the tree of life. There is a book called the Book of Life, often also called the Book of Love. There's a star-spangled cloak that is often draped over this throne that represents the resurrection body or the light body, also called the rainbow body. There's a crown uh, that represents ascended consciousness. There's a, the spear of destiny, a sponge, and a jar that contains the sacred oil that transforms the human body into the rainbow body or light body on contact. That is... What I just described to you is the complete Ark of the Covenant. Anytime you see the Ark as a golden box without these other tools or implements or devices present is not a, a complete representation of the Ark of the Covenant. Likewise, this is also the complete cross of Christ. 
Christianity tends to focus on just the cross and the instrument of torture, but actually the cross, esoterically speaking, is really an instrument of, of transmutation. It converts flesh or mass into light, spirit, or energy. And so what we're looking at here with this complete device, with the ark, with the cross, the, the rod, the spear, the, the crown, the book, the, the star-spangled cloak or light body, is the complete device. Now you asked, well, where is it now? Well, the artwork that I collected in the book makes it absolutely clear that this device is protected by angelic beings who could well be transformed or perfected humans who live in another dimension or perhaps I traced them all the way to the center of the Milky Way galaxy. And based on this artwork and the, and the traditions I followed, I came to the conclusion that this device is not on Earth. It's protected. It's in another realm. Wow. So basically, this device assists in the Christ consciousness awakening within the individual, not just the figure Christ returning. Exactly, because what I found, Laura, and this is what's so fascinating, is that the throne of the second coming, which is the complete Ark of the Covenant, and this is what I call the Judgment Day device. Again, the, the, the Ark platform with the cross attached, the cloak, the book, uh, the crown, and so forth, is exactly the same thing as the throne of Buddha. Both Christianity and Buddhism came to the, had the same problem at the same time. How do you represent symbolically an abstract concept? The Buddha and the Christ were thought of as the way, the way to ascension, the way to transformation. So how do you portray these figures? And it turns out that they portrayed Buddha and Christ with exactly the same symbolism. What the Buddhists taught, though, is that these symbols represent aspects of our consciousness. They're psycho-spiritual attributes within us. And the Buddhist monks were taught that you know, the throne, you, you, you are to become the throne for this divine energy. You are to transform your body into a pure vessel, a tree of life, and a throne upon which this divine energy can sit. Well, of course, Christianity won't go anywhere near a concept like that, because how dare you think you can become Christ or Buddha-like, right? And so what these symbols actually represent are aspects of our consciousness. And literally, the Buddhist monks are taught the meaning of these symbols, and then they're taught to embody them within themselves. What I did in the book, which is kind of the unique twist, I mean, other scholars have, have, have observed that the throne of Buddha and the throne of the Second Coming symbolically are interchangeable. They're exactly the same thing. I mean, the throne of Buddha shows a, a throne, with uh, a tree of life, which is actually the Bodhi tree, the tree of enlightenment attached to it. And so the Bodhi tree and the cross of Christ attached to the Ark, are, they're exactly the same thing, because the Ark of the Covenant is called the throne or footstool of God. And so we're, we're very comfortable in recognizing that this is actually, these are symbols uh, or metaphors for mystical initiation. They They help us to transcend... Uh, this realm, and by assembling these respective symbols in our consciousness, we actually begin to embody the Buddha consciousness, or by extension, the Christ consciousness. But what I did in, in adding to this dialogue was recognize that the Buddhist throne, or the throne of Buddha and the throne of Christ, are preceded by another throne uh, symbol that's identical 
and is much, much older. And the source of the symbolism, I believe, and as I document in the book, actually comes from Abydos, Egypt. The symbolism is actually originally the throne of Osiris (laughs) that was assembled by Isis. Uh-huh. And this then brings in the whole divine feminine line as of these teachers, these initiates, the, the, the divine feminine who awakened human consciousness and showed us how to assemble this Judgment Day device originally within our own selves. Wow. Can you dig a little bit deeper into that and just uh, what you know about, you know, the Magdalene energy that other people might not know about or maybe without the name, just the Divine Feminine and and where we're coming into more awareness with that right now? Yeah. Um, In my view, uh, I always thought of Jesus as Mary Magdalene's daredevil test pilot. (laughs) She was, to me, she was like the great initiator. I mean, he, he could not fulfill his mission without her. And she's the one, along with Jesus's brother James, that and I show this in the book, they are the ones who actually went and assembled the pieces of this device. Now, I I use the word device because when you look that up in the dictionary, a device is a symbol, it's a a sign, and it's a tool and an appliance. And so what I'm describing here is a device, the Judgment Day device, actually functions on all of those levels. It is a set of symbols and it is actually a tool or an appliance. I mean, it's it's quite possible that there is this actual Stargate device that was brought to Earth long ago by angelic beings referred to as seraphim, and it is assembled and disassembled throughout history. Mm. At the time of Jesus, it was his brother James and Mary Magdalene who were the ones who went and assembled these various pieces. And I believe it was actually the Magdalene who was the one who actually could make this device work because in ancient Egypt, it was Isis who assembled these pieces. Now, this is all based on the the story of of Osiris who was disassembled or cut to pieces by his brother Seth or Set and then was reassembled by his wife, Isis. In ancient Egypt, Osiris was portrayed as a man or as a humanoid figure, but he was also portrayed symbolically as this device that included the Ark, what we think of as the Ark of the Covenant as the base with this tree of life attached. And the ancient Egyptians said the Osiris device was actually an ascension device. It was a dematerialization device. It could take a human and, and dematerialize them into energy so that they could then be beamed to other locations and then reassembled uh, a la Star Trek at at, a, at another location. So as a priestess of Isis, Mary Magdalene is following along this tradition, and she is the one who actually put all these pieces together and then assisted in Jesus' transformation into uh, into the light being. And then after the, the what we think of as the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, the, the device was disassembled and is now awaiting reassembly perhaps in our time. Wow. Ah, goosebumps. I love it. <laughs> and so um, you've got uh, – I, I want to ask you about Moses. Do you need me to say more? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Um, I, I, just, I, I understand that um, part of what you've done or, or come up with is – sort of a concept of who Moses was, really. 
Yeah, I mean, part of what we struggle with is we have these kind of Hollywood versions of the story of Moses. And by the way, both Ridley Scott and Steven Spielberg are writing Moses movies right now. So this should be pretty interesting to see what they come up with. But what we often don't appreciate is just the, the, the level of esoteric knowledge and initiatory knowledge that these figures possessed. Moses, of course, is is one who was directly responsible for bringing or manifesting the Ark of the Covenant, as well as the other tools or implements. And what I go into detail in the book is to is to recognize that when when Moses is when he makes the Ark of the Covenant, he is engaged in assembling this Judgment Day device. And I, and I like to use the word make uh, because. I don't think Moses manufactured the Ark of the Covenant. I think he made it just like police make a car. When when the police make a car, they're not manufacturing it. They're identifying it. They're saying that you're driving a 99 Toyota or a 2012 Volkswagen or whatever it is. So they're when they make something, they're, they're identifying it. Is it so like a patent, Mo- maybe? Like a patent, sort of? Well, kind of, but more just... Just identifying it, because um, Moses was given the pattern for the Ark of the Covenant at the base of Mount Sinai. And it was actually an Israelite uh, craftsman named Bezalel who was actually responsible for crafting the Ark of the Covenant. And what's, what's important to note about that is that just before Bezalel constructed or, or made the Ark, he received this download from, from Yahweh and, that included all the holy wisdom of the universe. And to me, that was a that was a tip-off that there's got to be something more going on with the Ark of the Covenant because why would God give Bezalel this incredible download if he's just making a simple golden box? So it's suggested to me that there's something far more mysterious or perhaps supernatural about the Ark than than has previously really been discussed. And so Moses is the benefactor. He possesses now the Ark of the Covenant, which is, by the way, according to the Bible, it's a duplicate or a copy of the heavenly original. So there's an Ark on Earth, and there's an Ark in the heavenly Sion, which is the name of the heavenly domain of of Yahweh and, and also of Jesus. And this is what, by the way, started me thinking that maybe the Ark of the Covenant is some kind of a docking station. There's one of these in the heavenly realms, and there's one on earth, and they, this is how they phase back and forth between between the realms, as they have this, this device, the, the, the ark device. But when Moses he starts to use the ark, one of the key episodes in his life, or in his story, rather, is when he raised what's called the Nehushtan, when he lifted the serpent of healing in the wilderness. And what was so incredible about that is that that symbolism, the serpent lifted on a pole, is exactly the same symbol used for the head of Osiris, which is a component of the Osiris device. So right away I recognized that what Moses is doing is just revamping this ancient Egyptian technology. He's remaking it or he's reassembling it. And when Moses created or, or made the Nehushtan, lifted the serpent of healing, what we find in is that that word Nehushtan actually means fiery serpent. He was making a fiery serpent. Well, that's the definition of the the highest order of angels called the seraphim, the fiery serpents. The, The seraphim are believed to be 
perfect or perfected humans, humans who have completed the the earthly spiral of evolution and have transformed themselves or dematerialized themselves into light beings, beings of pure light and pure love, and now dwell at the throne of God. So what that told me is that what Moses was doing was assembling this device and showing us how to actually transform ourselves into the highest order of angels. Mm. And that really takes us into some really powerful places because ever since then we've been trying to figure out, well, how can humans, how can we transform ourselves into angels and do all the things that angels can do? That's one of the primary questions I feel we're all trying to get a handle on. Right, so that kind of leads me to my question about where this device has been, and there must have been some level of hijacking of it or some you know, major dark forces that are trying to keep us from getting in touch with it, which you have plowed through and been able to you know, be able to put this book out. But wh- where do you see uh, us after this December 21st period and being, being able to have access to this more? And, and what do you feel this shift time has really done for us as a humanity? Well, I... Uh... I feel that what the the device is designed to do is to link us with the throne and to assist us in our transformation into ascended beings or or light beings. And in my research, I kept I long ago, I think gosh, it must have been early 2000s or so, I came upon a a diagram in John Major Jenkins' book. Uh it was uh, Maya Cosmogenesis 2012. And it, it the, the illustration came from a, a Mayan codex, and it showed the Mayan uh, savior figure, Quetzalcoatl, whose name means the feathered serpent or the fiery serpent, which is exactly the same definition as the Hebrew or Israelite seraphim that are manifested and protect the Ark of the Covenant. And this particular diagram showed the, the birth of Quetzalcoatl from the, his celestial or starry home. Uh, it's shown in this diagram as an eight-spoked wheel, which Hunbut's men and other Mayan symbolists have identified as the center of the Milky Way galaxy. So what this this diagram actually shows is the descent of Quetzalcoatl from the galactic center via this umbilical cord that the Mayans called a serpent rope. Well, what John Jenkins did is he took out the archaic Mayan term serpent rope and said, well, wait a minute, it, it, you know, it sounds like we can put in the modern term wormhole, and we have an accurate interpretation of what the Mayans are trying to convey in this diagram, that when Quetzalcoatl, this seraphim, this super-advanced humanoid being, descends from the galactic core, he travels via a wormhole or a stargate. Well, what happened in my research is that... Um, I started finding these Christian last judgment images. And it's kind of, it was kind of humorous because last the, or judgment day or the last judgment in the Christian prophetic tradition was in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verse 12. Get it? Revelation 2012 is, is judgment day in the, in the Christian prophetic tradition. And I, I came upon these Russian last judgment images from the 14th century that just absolutely baffle art historians. And what these images show are Christ enthroned in an eight-spoked wheel with a serpent that links his throne to the earthly realm. Hmm. And I put these Russian Last Judgment images side by side with the Maya image of the serpent rope and Quetzalcoatl descending through a stargate or wormhole and said, wait a minute, 
these diagrams are showing exactly the same concept. There, there's this fairly widespread belief that Earth and the galactic center are connected via a, a serpent rope or a wormhole. And in these Russian Last Judgment images, the link between Earth and the throne, the galactic center, is portrayed as being this Judgment Day device, this complete arc throne. And it was from that that I came up with this concept that, well, wait a minute, you know, the reason why Christ is shown keeping this device close in all this Christian Last Judgment art is because it's, it's his device. And the revelation of this Stargate device will completely change everything. And that's what this period is about, is where we begin to really connect ourselves more with our future selves, with our light body selves, rather than our earthly, fleshy, material selves. So what I've been doing since then, um, I've got a presentation coming up here in Nashville in April called The Path of Souls. And since I, I wrote the Judgment Day device, and even while writing it, I, I just started collecting all these various maps, or what I call maps, uh, throughout uh the past, say, couple thousand years that show these linkages between Earth and these heavenly realms, and they're almost always showing it as some kind of like a serpent rope or a cosmic conduit that links Earth with these celestial realms. Wow. It's amazing. <laughs> now, um, William, the... <clears throat> There's been uh, various prophecies and visionaries that, that speak about the appearance of a great sign before the second coming. What's, what's your take on this? Yeah, this is the sign that's seen in the, in the sun. And the, that sign is the symbol or device of Christ. And, the, and it is the complete throne. It's the Judgment Day device. And I feel that that we're on the verge of we're able to understand what what all this is is about. I mean, in in my view, and I, I discuss this in the book. I, I'm thinking of you know we when we talk about a Christ-like being, we can compare Christ to a type three or a type four being on the Kardashev scale. We're talking about energetic beings, humanoid but non-physical, but energetic beings that have the ability to tap the the power of the galactic core. They travel the galaxy through wormholes. They have the the ability to phase back and forth between the material and immaterial realm. And it's they, these type 3 or type 4 beings, the seraphim, who are always connected with this sign, symbol, or device. It's, it is they who originally brought it to Earth. And the message is, is that this device is actually a it's like a seraphim machine. It's a seraphim maker. It transforms humans into these highly energetic, advanced beings virtually on contact. Hmm. Hello? I'm here. I lost. Uh, no, I, I was lost there. I'm really looking forward to to reading your book and 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 getting the. I, I'm loving what I'm getting right now, but it's bringing up so many more questions and as i'm just kind of uh, at times um while listening to all of this um in my own um mind sort of swimming in the ether but i'll come out of that for a moment um now you connect the throne to the sun and increased solar activity what what is that connection because this is awfully interesting with all the solar flare 
um, activity last year and then what they're saying um, about the increased activity in 2013. Right. In these um, in these last judgment images that I collected in the book it, that shows – they're sort of – they're like tiered images. They show the earth plane. Then they show another plane, and then there's another tier above that, and then you finally get up into the celestial realms where you're you're amongst all the the fast moving, uh, higher vibrational beings around the throne, and the the throne of Christ is often portrayed as a as a radiant orb, and originally or, or certainly one one way of interpreting this is that, and, and this by the way, uh, it's. The Mormons, as well as the Mayans, that proclaim that the throne is actually located at the center of the Milky Way galaxy. The, the Mayan, excuse me, the Mormons have a belief that there was a, a whole city, the city of Enoch, also called Sion, hmm. that was inhabited by advanced humans that achieved human perfection, which means they achieved the rainbow body or the light body, and were translated to God's home planet, which is called Kolob which exists at the center of the Milky Way galaxy. And so that was an amazing revelation when I started following and, and contemplating the Kolob theorem, because even the Bible tells us that Christ's throne is inhabited by, as, they, as the book of Hebrews calls them, just humans made perfect. And it's like, well, who are these, who are these people? And, and how did they achieve the great perfection or their transformation in, into light beings? And so I started originally thinking, well, okay, let's look at the throne as the center of the Milky Way galaxy. But then I started noticing that the way uh, the Christian Last Judgment art shows that the throne of the second coming in Christ's throne is they will often show this river of divine fire emanating from the throne going through the Adamasia, or the throne of the second coming, and then entering into the earth plane. And so it's as if this judgment day device is in between earth and the throne. It's like a, a transformer almost, is sort of the picture I was getting. And it's a transformer of this divine energy. Well, what ended up happening is I started comparing these images of Christ's radiant throne and this river of divine fire coming out of that throne with images that NASA started publishing back in 2010 that show what they, what they call X-portals. About every eight minutes or so, our sun opens up and this what are called magnetic flux ropes of highly charged particles emanate from the sun and connect the earth with the sun. And literally... NASA artist conceptions of, of these magnetic flux ropes, they, they call these flux transfer events of these highly charged particles, they, they look like serpent ropes. They look exactly like the Maya serpent rope images, and they look exactly like the Christian art showing this river of divine fire coming out of the throne of the sun, the S-O-N, which in fact could be the S-U-N. And so I started to, to realize that that what it could be happening here is that the throne could, in fact, be the sun, but you're allowed to scale up, uh, according to astronomers, that what happens energetically with the sun, we can extrapolate it and saying it's also happening with the central sun, the, the center of the Milky Way galaxy. And I began to realize that what we're talking about here is this channel of cosmic energy 
coming out of, probably originating from the galactic, the galactic core, the galactic sun, that gets transformed by our own sun or stepped down in frequency and then manifests on the earth plane. Now, Christianity tells you that you want to avoid this river of divine fire at all costs. They call it hellfire. But many traditions speak of it actually as being a transformative energy, a cleansing and purifying fire that raises all to a higher level of vibration. And that's what I feel um, we're seeing in this Christian Last Judgment art that shows this divine energy coming out of Christ's throne. Because how can an energy coming out of the throne of Christ in any way be harmful to humans? It must be beneficial. It's a Christ energy, right? Mm -hmm. So what we're trying to figure out is, well, okay, is this energy in fact coming through the sun? Is that uh, what we're anticipating here with all of the solar flare activity, and is there a way for us to harness these charged particles? Because if we do, uh, then we're talking about a free energy device here. We're talking about no more oil, no more dependency on fossil fuels. We're talking about, once again, uh, the, the creation of a device, a free energy device, that solves all of our problems. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, and especially crossing this December 21st period and being just uh, really, all of us, so activated. You know, the dark forces are definitely falling away, which means that this is all very, very possible. It is happening, and that's what's so incredible, to be where we are today. Oh, I agree. And, you know, again, going back to current events with Iran and Israel, we're going to see more of it. I mean, I'm convinced that the period between now and June could be the time when we really start to see a, a, a huge revelation about all of this. And the reason I feel that way is because, well, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, who again believes he is the, the divinely ordained forerunner of the Mahdi, is going to be removed from office in June of 2013, and, and Iran will elect a new president. So he's really only got the next five months in order to fulfill his spiritual destiny. And it's my feeling, based on my profile of him, that he's going to do everything he possibly can to fulfill this prophecy in the next five months. Wow, right. Oh, awesome, awesome information. Just to shift gears slightly, I'm sure we'll kind of get back into all this. What is happening as of late with your investigation into Stargates um, and that whole thing that was going on with the Google thing and the video games and some of this stuff that we talked about when I was on your show? What, what's the latest on all that? Um, it's kind of gone cold for me right now. I'm, I've been personally just super busy doing other research and have been sort of keeping tabs on it. But I don't think Google is having the the, uh, the uh, success with it that they wanted, or maybe they already had the success that they wanted, and you know that's all there's going to be. Um, what we're referring to here is Google um, has released a, a new game. Well, let me just say the backstory of this is that for for years, I've been going around into urban areas, into libraries, museums, civic spaces, and, and identifying the, the incredible Stargate art that has suddenly been popping up, especially since about the mid-90s or so. New York, Chicago, Dallas, D.C., Nashville, all these cities have this incredible Stargate art that's popping up. And often these these places are like pilgrimage centers. You can go to Thanksgiving Square in Dallas, for example, and, and see an, an amazing uh, display of Stargate art, and with it, 
powerful messages about human transformation and transcendence. And these are messages that often uh, connect this art or are featured at, the, at these displays. And for several years, I've been pitching uh, a TV show called What's in Your Backyard or Stargates Around the World and just wanting to go around and, and document all this art. It's like a travel show. And as I pitched it to NBC Universal and ITV, BBC, other places, they're all kind of like, well, you know, it sounds like a good travel show, but you really need, you've you got to have something happening at these places in order for it to be really entertaining. And so if you can get people coming out of the portal or something like that, you know, that might help you sell your idea. <laughs> well, Google in November 2012 announced that they had spent millions of dollars on their new top secret game, which is called Ingress. And the premise is, what Google says, is that there are stargates that are popping up in all these urban centers, in libraries, museums, and civic spaces. And what they, what the game is about is that it's a competition, it's a war, actually, between the enlightened who believe a new consciousness is coming on the planet. And it's manifesting, or evidence of its manifestation, is in this artwork that is the stargate art that's popping up in these urban centers. And what they created was this game where the enlightened would go and try to identify and get people to come to these urban portals because they're energy centers, hot spots, but they would be challenged in their game by the resistance. The resistance does not believe in this new consciousness, thinks these stargates should be controlled, and they're trying to, so they've created this, this competition between the enlightened and the resistance for control of these hot spots. Mm. And I'm thinking, well, wait a minute, you know, that, that's my show. That's exactly <laughs> what I was talking about. And here's Google now doing it as a game. And the thing is, is that they play this game on two realities. There's the Google game level where people visit these places via Google, like Google Earth, and they also play it in the real world. So what Google is saying is that there there is actually – a battle or a competition going on between the enlightened and the resistance right now for control of these urban portals or stargates. Hmm. And, and what are your personal thoughts on all that? Well, I mean, at first I was kind of like, uh, you know, a little pissed off about it. It's like, wait a minute, you know, this is really crazy. But then as I talk with uh, talk about uh, this with, with people, they're saying, well, you know, at least it puts the idea of stargates in people's consciousness and recognition that this is going on. So, I'm, you know, I've, I've actually just kind of backed off it just a little bit for now, been super busy um, with the Path of Souls work and other things that I'm doing. And, and you know, I'm talking with, I, I do have an, an agent, and she's trying to set up a meeting with Google just to go sit down with them and say, hey, you know, um, just thought I'd let you know that you know I was kind of on this idea for years, and uh, just let you know that there might be a different way of looking at this or, or talking about this. Right. Totally. Wow. So tell us a little bit. I mean, I, I can't get over how much you do. I mean, it's incredible. You're just so on it in every way, and and here you are, you know, doing these tours, and uh, you have something called the Path of Souls. Um, and doorways into other dimensions. Can you tell us a little bit about this and, and what you do um, for the individual on these tours? Because it sounds like a major activation. It is. It really is. I mean, uh, the the doorways into other dimensions is a is a tour we're taking to southern France, 
we're going to Rennes-le-Chateau and, and Cathar country to explore the portals there and, and just feel the energies. It's such a magnificently beautiful place, highly, highly energetic. And a lot of people will come on these tours if they feel like they've maybe had a past life connection with the with the Cathars or part of the Magdalene lineage or doing that kind of work, and they really feel it in in uh, in the area of southern France where we're going. And I, I can't wait to get back there. It's been uh, several years since I've been in southern France. I was focusing on doing uh, a lot of Egypt tours for the past five or six years, but now I'm uh, doing France this year, might do England as well, and uh, just really looking forward to, to getting back into that energy in, in southern France. And, and you're right, it, it is an activation because I – the, the, the Cathars had a belief very similar to the Buddhists in, in terms of what they called the terma tradition or the hidden treasure tradition. I mean, the, the belief is that these locations, Montsegur and, and other areas of, of southern France, are, are places where this sacred knowledge has literally been deposited in the landscape. So as you go there and you walk the land and you drink the water, eat the food, drink the wine, breathe the air – you're you're inhaling at all times this this energy and this vibration that actually contains this sacred knowledge and that's what makes it so powerful for me to and and others to go to these places that is you, you're putting yourself in a position to actually receive these downloads. Mm. Right. And then then the path of souls uh is my new Nashville event. Twice a year I I do events here in Nashville where I live. We've got uh, copies of two healing temples from the ancient world. I, I live right beside one. It's the Parthenon. We have a scale replica of Athena's Parthenon from ancient Greece. It's 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 actually a duplicate of Athena's temple, her temple of wisdom. And inside is the tallest indoor statue in the Western world. It's a 42-foot tall statue of Pallas Athena, completely covered with gold. Wow. And you know, talk about an energetic hotspot. I mean, this place is absolutely amazing. And then just a couple of miles away, we have the, the Bicentennial Capitol Mall site, which I call Stargate Park, which is a 2,200-foot-long magician's rod that is laid out and growing at the base of our state capitol that actually combines two temple ancient temple sites or technologies into one. It's both an, an Asherah, the oak grove or healing grove of the goddess, and it's also a Gilgal which is a stone circle, which was the name of the place where Elijah ascended into the heavens in a whirlwind. And in this place, Stargate Park is absolutely just mind-blowing. It's it's truly uh, like a, a mystery school that's been laid out for us here in Nashville. And so you know, Nashville has kind of a reputation of being sort of like a hee-haw type of place and everything. And you know, people just can't believe that we have these copies of these healing temples from the ancient world here in Nashville, but we do. Wow, that's fascinating. You, you've actually done quite a bit of research on the signs and, and symbols around Nashville, haven't you? I have. Yeah, I uh, just started uh, poking around. I was actually, I, I was writing, uh, I was, at the time I started on this, I was writing a book about FDR and his quest for the Holy Grail uh, in 1934. And there was a, some letters that were written between the participants in the search, FDR's two-term Secretary of Agriculture and third-term VP was named Henry Wallace, who was deeply, deeply steeped in ancient occult lore, Masonic lore, that sort of thing. And he, in fact, was a disciple of a Russian mystic and guru named Nicholas Rurik. 
And there were letters that were written between Wallace and Rurik while Rurik was in Mongolia on behalf of the New Deal, FDR, looking for evidence of the Second Coming and the secrets of the Holy Grail. And lo and behold, one of these letters, as I decoded it, indicated that they were going to return the results of their search to Nashville. And so I just started poking around Nashville thinking, well, okay, you know, show me uh, show me the signs or symbols of the Holy Grail here in, in Nashville. And, and I found it. It's at the uh, Bicentennial Mall here in Nashville, Stargate Park. Wow. Wow. I love that. <laughs> now, you've lived in <clears throat> Nashville for, did you say, 30 years? 30 years now. Mm-hmm. Great. Now, I met you um, for the first time in, in December in Phoenix, and I did not have an opportunity um, to meet your wife. So, um, but, I, but I do have just a couple of questions for you related to um, relationship and, and everything like that. Uh, your wife is also uh, has a book out right now. Is that correct? Yes, she does. It's called Sacred Reflections. It's about angels. Looks like a truly beautiful book. It really is. She's got like several hundred of the most amazing paintings of angels, many of them you've never seen before. And the the book is just full color, just loaded with these just amazingly energetic paintings. I love it. Now, how long have you two been together? Three years. We oh, met on, uh, on one of my Egypt tours. Uh, she had come on the tour and about the third day of the tour, I just we were at Saqqara, and I looked over. And she was kind of walking around the temple there, and all of a sudden, I said, "Wait a minute, that's that's my wife." <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we were married ten months later. Oh, what a beautiful story! I just have to tell you the the feeling that I get when I look at um, a couple of the photos I've seen of the two of you is a very just strong, deep, beautiful connection, and. Um, yeah, you well, both you. are incredibly photographic uh, also, and so um, I just kind of wanted to, to touch on that just a bit. Well, thank you very much. That's very kind of you. So my question is, you know, what, what do you feel is the biggest lie and distortion that has been passed down to us? And if you – I know you empower so much, but just to put in perspective maybe just your favorite, <laughs> what, what, what do you feel is the greatest truth that you feel is necessary to share that has been sort of hidden? I think probably it would have to do with our um, – well, let me answer it this way. Um, a lot of what my work is about is about transformation and the, and the belief that we're all in a pupil phase. We're, we're morphing into higher beings. And I always refer people to a cartoon once I saw of two caterpillars looking up at a butterfly saying, you'll never get me up in one of those things. <laughs> and, and, and to me, that, that encapsulates where we're at, because as a culture, we're told to fear who we truly are. And we're told to to identify with our lower self rather than our higher self. And to me, that's that's the greatest distortion. That's the greatest uh, – that's the, the area where we've grown, gone most off track. And if we begin to identify ourselves more with our butterfly or our morph self, then our culture changes. We begin to open up into other dimensions, other dimensional beings, our own healing capabilities, the true true abilities within us, the true power 
within us. But so long as our culture keeps us identifying ourselves with our caterpillar self, with our lower self, then we're going to be totally controlled. And that's, to me, what it's all about, is overcoming that aspect of our culture and that control and awakening this latent ability within us to to morph into higher beings. Gosh, that was so beautifully said and just so simply well put. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I really love that that answer. Um and so it it's really a, a perfect lead in to, to this question. Um as um an author, as an investigative mythologist, all the research. Um, yeah, I can't even imagine what the, the last 25 years has been like as far as you just just diving in and immersing yourself in all of this and, and how your mind and brain works to pull it all together to make it um, as easily uh, palatable um, for the rest of us. And um, I really honor you for that. So... I, I'd like to invite you to speak to us from your heart about what the journey has been like for you. This is fascinating amounts of information, and but but for this last part of the the broadcast with us tonight, if you could just take it to what the heart journey has been and and how all this information has assisted you in in your own personal journey here. Well, I mean, it's the recognition that i mean a lot of people talk about the ark of the covenant but what a lot of people don't talk about is that it's love is the power that that creates the ark of the covenant and that to me is the real the real essence of of what we're talking about here i mean i I've, I've done a lot of work on on the idea of of stargates and and the possibility that we can access these other realms but what is often overlooked in especially conversations about stargates is what's the power that opens those gates well it's the power of the heart it's the power of love that opens those gates and so my my continuing quest is to to open my own heart to connect with that divine energy of love and recognize that that is all that is and that's all of who we are and to put down the fear, embrace the higher aspect of ourselves, our loving selves, and everything else will take care of itself. Hmm. Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Great answer. Now, um as just as just a follow up to that, you know, here we are having come through the twenty twelve portal and, and this and that. What does from from your perspective what does the future look and feel like for the collective well we're we're in the process of determining that right now aren't we i mean to me we we we're right here at a crossroads where we have really only only two choices right now and i think there's a ticking clock in our world you you many people are are aware that we have what's called the singularity that's coming up where what we're going to start to see over the next five years, maybe seven, maybe as many as ten, we're starting to see to see humans that have what what I just call the it factor, advanced information technology implanted within the skin or absorbed by the body that gives them superhuman capabilities. 
This is the, the, the ability to morph ourselves into transhumans or more than humans via the technology. That's one clear choice, and that we're starting to see that now where we're, we're seeing more and more examples at, at Best Buy and elsewhere of wearable technology. And we know that where this is going is, is into the skin. That's the ultimate objective of Microsoft and Apple and all these companies is to take all this stuff out of our hands and put it into our skin and develop this new skin, this super skin for humanity that will turn us into transhumans. So that's one choice. But the other choice is that we activate our latent spiritual capabilities. I call that the O factor and create a, a garment of organic light around our body and begin to activate our our rainbow body or our light body and the two are mutually exclusive because technology the the it factor can't help you to achieve the o factor it can't help you to achieve the rainbow body but our culture is is trying to drive us into creating this power garment and believing that we can only we can become more powerful by implanting this technology within us and I feel that that's what this this time is about for us right now is that within the next five years, we will begin to see humans start to morph into something that that we really can't even begin to to recognize right now or even perhaps uh, fathom. And what's going to be lost is is our humanity if we allow that to happen. And so part of what my work is going to be about in the coming years here is is waking people up to say, hey, wait a minute, we, we, we really want to rethink this. Albert Einstein, I think, got it right when, when it comes to change, when he said that we can't solve problems by using the same kind of thinking we used when we created them. And he goes on to say that in order to solve our current problems, the next human will have to emerge. Well, the next human, as far as Apple is concerned, or Microsoft, or some of these Silicon Valley companies, is not necessarily what we would readily identify as a human. And the next human that has to emerge is the is the more loving, the more compassionate, the more connected human that form our world from that space of of love and, and a, an ascension agenda, not a technology agenda. I'm beside myself. I'm so happy that he asked a question that pulled us out of you because this is the basis of what's so important to me right now is empowering the divine human and our spiritual capabilities and, you know, seeing, you know, the the path of technology um, for what it really is and recognizing the dangers there. So I just so appreciate your answer and your perspective, and I'm just grateful that um, that came out because uh, – that is the real deciding factor, and, and, and the thing is it's being thrust upon us. Nobody is voting for this. It's, it's coming from exactly. chemtrails. It's, it's, it's an assault, and uh, that's why your work is just so profound and so important because it really hits home what this other choice is, which is organic. It's our birthright, and we need to step up and uh, claim it. So I exactly. so appreciate that. And I just have to ask, how do you do it? I mean, we both, you know, worked on books ourselves. Um, I mean, I'm not asking you to spill your secrets, but do you just get <laughs> constant downloads? I mean, or, or you just have an idea and then you just keep chasing it until you pull all the pieces together? I mean, I've really yeah. never experienced anybody that just puts out as much as you that is so the pulse of what needs to come out right now. So I guess well, thank just, you, yeah, questions I, about that. I'm kind of like a the one-armed paper, paper hanger, and I've always got several presentations I'm working on and a couple of books, and it's like I'm just kind of – you know, throwing stuff against the wall all the time. I mean, it feels like I just uh, 
I, I don't have a, a clear uh, plan of attack as I'm doing it. I'm just doing it. It's kind of organic, really. And, um, you know, I just work every day. I get up early. I get up about 5 every morning and um, enjoy the quiet time. And, you know, by noon, I'm, I uh, have done all my research and, and writing, and then I shift gears and do all the other stuff we got to do to live and that sort of thing. So I just find that, you know, by doing it every day, and uh, it just pretty soon – it, it all starts to just kind of – it's like going around the crystal bowl, right? I mean, you're, you're, as you're playing the bowl, a, a little bit of effort suddenly has a, a huge and dramatic impact. And, you know, it's just a, a, an organic and living thing in that way. It's so inspirational and just amazing because it really hits – it really just hits the most important stuff. And I recognize this immediately when I came in contact with your work and – I was so relieved I almost felt like I didn't have to write a book. I'm like, oh, gosh, he's covering, like, <laughs> like thank goodness for this. So right. I so appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. It's just been Oh, it's incredible. absolutely my pleasure. So before we close out, um, give us uh, sort of a rundown of where we can connect with you, what you have coming up, anything we should know. Um, just this is the opportunity to share with us. Great. Well, Thank you, Mark. Yeah, my website is williamhenry.net. Uh, I'll actually be in uh, Los Angeles uh, February 8th through the 10th at the Conscious Life Expo. And then um, I'll be in Tucson in March. I've got my Nashville event in April. Uh, and then in May, uh, the Doorways into Other Dimensions Tour in France, as well as uh, the Revelation Symposium. I've got Graham Hancock and Whitley Strieber coming to Nashville for a weekend event. I'm really looking forward to that. That'll take us about up to the 1st of June. I love it. You have amazing things going on. Um, as Laura said, you are truly an inspiration on, on the highest levels. Um, and, you know, such gratitude for all that you're doing and, and really honored to have you on Awaken the Dream Radio. And, uh from from myself and Laura and all of our listeners and multitudes of other beings on this planet, William, uh, thank you for all that you're doing. Oh, well, thank you, and thank you for all that you do. It's it's truly appreciated, and I look forward to catching up with you guys again soon. Absolutely. Have a great night, everybody, and thanks again, William. Okay, thank you. All right, all, um, check out our site, touroflove.com and Cosmic. GaiaSophia.com for our updated uh, schedule and um, different events and happenings. And we will be posting um, our next uh, guest uh, here shortly. It will be part two with Lisa Renee. And um, we've got some great, uh, some great broadcasts coming up. Please uh, keep paying attention and supporting us like you always have at Awaken the Dream Radio. Thank you so much, and have a wonderful evening. Good night, all. Good night.